here with you again and to visit with you and come with greetings to you from Aberdeen Primitive Baptist Church and covet your prayers for them there. Brother Louis Sacron is preaching for them. I give them a special treat every now and then. Let some visiting preacher come in so they don't have to always put up with me. Good to be here and visit with you. And uh, we are mindful to pray for you that God might be pleased. Soon, uh, grant you, uh, send you a pastor. I was just thinking as Brother Herman was mentioning about various churches are in need of pastors that uh, the day may kind of reverse itself that we would have more itinerant pastors. There were times in American history uh, because there were so few preachers among the Baptists especially that preachers would uh, ride a circuit and they would uh, uh, preach in different churches at different times. That's how we kind of had uh, what's now you know meetings at maybe once a month. Uh, much better if a congregation can meet you know every Lord's Day but sometimes of necessity, uh, they would be meeting just once a month, and uh, so I, they would have itinerant preachers come and preach to them. John Gano was one of those early preachers in America, and it is said that uh, he probably rode more than 2,000 miles horseback uh, preaching in various congregations. So we're glad to be with you here today, and trust God will bless us as we look to his word. I have your reading this morning in the seventh chapter of Acts, uh, a phrase struck my mind that uh, I want to just give some thoughts to. Uh, in the fifth verse, he gave him not inheritance in it, no, not so much to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for possession and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. Of course, you're familiar with the story here behind this, as Abraham came out of Ur of Chaldees and uh, wandered in the land uh, that referred to as the land of Canaan now, days. And uh, verse 6, And God spake on this wise, that his seed so, should sojourn in a strange land, and that he should bring them into bondage, and treat them evil four hundred years. And the nation to whom they should be in bondage will I judge, said God, and after that uh, they shall come forth and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abram begot Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day, and he begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. The phrase here, uh, he gave him, verse 8, he gave him the covenant of circumcision. Circumcision is a subject that is much of controversy throughout Christendom from various times. Uh, what is its relevancy and what is its importance to us? <clears throat> there is a covenant that we sang about a moment ago, the eternal everlasting covenant. And that is the covenant by which God deals with his people. Uh, I call it the everlasting covenant because that's the term that is used in the book of Hebrews when referring to it. And we believe that before the foundation of the world, God did purpose to have a people that would love his son, and he therefore uh, purposed to create humanity and did choose out of humanity uh, a people called the elect of God and gave them to the son. John, the 17th chapter Christ speaks about those whom the Father gave unto him. And they were given to him as a people for whom the Son would die for. And uh, he is referred to in their, his relationship with them as being their elder brother. And they are referred to as sometimes as his children. Uh, all of which speaks about the relationship of Christ with his elect people. Uh, he is our natural head. And I emphasize the word natural. Not federal head, but natural head. Adam is our physical natural head. All of us descended from out of Adam. And by his transaction, transgression, death has passed upon all men because we were all in Adam. 
the elect of God were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And his righteousness has been imputed unto us. And our sins have been imputed unto him. Uh, and he died in our behalf as our head. There are several covenants mentioned in the Bible. And the first time you come to that word is relating to Noah and the flood. And God put a rainbow in the sky. And he said he made a covenant with all creation. And every time you see that rainbow, you remind yourself and should be reminded uh, that God gave that as a sign and promise to all creation that never again would the world be destroyed by flood. Now, we've had some big floods throughout the world. Brother Herman used to live over in an area in Arkansas that flooded, I think, about every other week. Uh, I remember my first trip ever coming through Mississippi. It was in the springtime. It was in the 60s. We were traveling along Highway 8 on our way to Grenada, Mississippi. And on both sides of the highway was floodwaters. And I said to myself or the person I was riding with, I never would want to live in this state. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> never say never, uh, because we've lived in Mississippi longer, I think, than I've ever lived anyplace else, though West Virginia is my home state. But there is a promise that God made concerning creation, and that covenant, the rainbow, is a reminder of it. And then you come to again to the covenant God made with Abraham. The covenant with Abraham is a twofold covenant. First aspect of that covenant was that he promised a son unto Abraham, and that his seed, the seed of Abraham, uh, in his seed would all the nations of the earth be blessed. Paul tells us what that is in Galatians. He did not say seeds as plural, but seed singular, and that seed he said is Christ. Now I do not mean to be anti-Semitic, I just speak the truth. Some people think that that, term, that that promise was made to the nation of Israel, that thereby by the Jewish nation, all people are blessed. Well, I don't want to belittle anything that Jewish people have ever done, but that's not what that promise is related to. It's related to spiritual things, Christ in him, but all the nations of the earth be blessed. He is not the Savior merely of the Jews. He is the Savior of the world. Of course, you understand that to mean not every single individual, but people out of all races of people. And Christianity has been a great blessing to the world. While the world hates Christianity and persecutes his, God's people, uh, yet Christianity has been a great blessing to the world. Uh, there were no hospitals apart from Christianity. There would be no orphanages apart from Christianity. Uh, that's just in the physical sense in which the world has been blessed by Christianity. Society in general has been blessed by Christianity. Laws are brought about because of the impact of Christianity on society. If you don't have Christianity, you have the law of the jungle. And so in Christ have all the nations of the world been blessed. There was another aspect of which that God made promise to Abraham, which was that he would give him that land as a possession. And that promise was made in relationship to circumcision. And the Jews, every Jewish person, every Jewish man, young man especially, was circumcised as a reminder that he had been given the promise of the land of Israel. That was a conditional promise. Now, the promise that God made to Abraham concerning the blessing of his seed was unconditional. There's nothing about God's promises to his elect people that are conditional. They're all unconditional. Now, I might say that there are conditions, but all those conditions are met by God. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. That's true. But God brings about repentance in our heart. Except you believe. 
We must believe. But God works repentance. God works faith, brings about faith in our hearts. So all the conditions are met in Christ. Obedience. Without holiness of no man see God. Well, whom of us and what person has ever walked across the face of the earth except Christ, who was of such holiness that he merited favor and presence with God? None but Christ. And there on the mountain of transfiguration, uh, they heard that great manifest, saw that great manifestation of the glory of Christ. And they heard the voice say, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And so all of his, <clears throat> all the conditions have been met in Christ. The con- the conditional aspect of the promised land, you'll find that God said, if you obey me, I will do so-and-so. If you do so-and-so, I will do so-and-so. But if you fail to do so-and-so, then I will bring judgments to you. And God kept his word. He promised that. And so when they were disobedient, he drove them from the land. When they were obedient, they were back in the land. And that covenant of circumcision was a reminder to the Jews, that they were inheritors of the land by natural genealogy. There were some strict rules laid down about the inheritance. For instance, uh, what's called the year of Jubilee, every 50 years. If a man became indebted and mortgaged his inheritance, and you know how God divided the land up, the 12 tribes, each man got a portion. If he became a mortgager and lost control of the land, in the year of Jubilee, the property was returned back to him. You could not lose your inheritance perpetually. They were forbidden to do anything whereby they would lose the land. And the covenant of circumcision was given to Israel for that very express purpose to remind them. It is a Jewish covenant, strictly Jewish covenant. It is not for Gentiles. It is strictly for Jews. Now, there are those who would advocate that the covenant of circumcision is preceded or is followed by baptism and that baptism is a... New Testament rite, which uh, fulfills the act of circumcision. Well, there's no scripture that at all supports that. There is a portion of scripture in Colossians, the second chapter, that is used to try and advocate that doctrine. In the second chapter of, of Colossians, we read, <clears throat> And you are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised. Now, well, that's, <clears throat> here we got that word then, what? It must be a New Testament thing then. You are circumcised. Well, note what it says. With the circumcision made without hands in the putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Christ, by his act of obedience on the cross of Calvary and in his life, both his active and passive obedience, has fulfilled all the requirements whereby that he was qualified to go to the cross, made to be under the law. And so every term of the law, every precept of the law, he fulfilled it, even this act of circumcision. And so we have been circumcised spiritually in the putting off the body of sins in the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And that is typified or confirmed then in his death, whereby that he, he died on behalf of sin for us. And we are, it is typified then by our baptism, buried with him in baptism, wherefore and also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And ye being dead in your sins... And the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you of all your trespasses. Well, what Paul here is speaking about is the spiritual act of regeneration. The thing that God repeatedly rebuked Israel about was that they didn't have the circumcision of the heart. And physical circumcision spoke of nothing, but it was the important thing, the circumcision of the heart. And so 
the spiritual act, the spiritual act of circumcision of heart is that which the Holy Spirit does by regeneration. And this is what Paul here was referring to here in that spiritual act of regeneration whereby we're made to put off the body of the flesh through and by the power of the Holy Spirit because of the death of Christ. And that is depicted in, by the act of baptism whereby we die on the old life, dead to sin, and are resurrected unto new life in Christ Jesus. Now, having said that, <clears throat> that brings up to my thoughts then, and that's somewhat introductory to what I want to talk to us about from the third chapter of Genesis. Having spoken about that eternal covenant, and I will say one more thing about that, that all the covenants that you find in the New Testament, in the Bible, they are expressions or extensions of the everlasting covenant. I want to go back to the third chapter of Genesis, and of course this is the book of beginnings, and in this book we have the beginnings uh, of all things. There are those who don't believe, who claim to believe the Bible, but they don't believe the first three chapters of Genesis. Well, if you don't believe the first three chapters of Genesis, I submit to you, you don't believe the Bible. And uh, Genesis 1-1 is paramount in that believing of the Bible. In the beginning, God. All good things have their origin with God. Uh, I said and I emphasize good. All good things have their origin with God. God is not the author of sin, and uh, he is the judger of sin. Uh, I spoke a few weeks ago at our church on the subject of the flood, and sixth chapter of Genesis depicts and speaks about God being grieved over the fact that he had made man. And the reason for that is because of sin. God hates sin. And it is opposed, it is in opposition to his nature, to his counsel and purpose. And only in Christ is sin defeated. And were it apart from Christ, we would be prey to sin. And that's what we have here in this third chapter. In the third chapter, <clears throat> we're, we began, now the serpent was the most subtle of beasts of the field. Of course, you know, realize that the serpent here is none other than the embodiment of, of Satan. What bodily form creature he possessed at that very moment and how he appeared is much speculation. I think that evidently he walked upright. Uh, I think that it must have been some great manifestation of a beautiful bodily form, uh, impressive, maybe even like a dinosaur. Uh, I don't know, and I'm just speculating. I do know a great transformation took place as a result of Satan's action here in the garden. Whatever this creature was, he is cursed to crawl upon his belly for the rest of his life. And so this serpent came to Eve in the garden. You know the background. God had told Adam and Eve that they were to till the, take care of the garden, be keepers of the garden. They were to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And I'll just uh, share with you a thought that I had this morning as I was uh, looking at, brother, at a book over Brother Herman's house about Henry Ford. And I was just, uh, I know you know something of that man's history and the significance of all that he has brought about and how the automobile has greatly changed the, uh, the world. He became a man of great knowledge and great uh, wit, uh, fame and great wealth. And yet, uh, as I was reading through the book, uh, I learned that he only had one child, he and his wife. I don't know why. I, I, I would think that they may have desired to have more children, but whatever reason, they only had one child. And his name, by the way, was Edsel. And that's where you get the Edsel car that was on the market for a few years. The only one child. And I, as I looked at that and thought about that, I thought how greatly blessed I was, greater than Henry Ford. My wife and I have been blessed with five children. And we got 
21 grandchildren now. And I just thought, I'm much more greatly blessed than even Henry the Ford was. Even in, in that realm, of course, uh, I don't believe, and there's no evidence that I've ever come across that Henry Ford was a believer in Christ. And if he were not, then his loss, his fame, and his wealth has all been left behind, and he's gained maybe the whole world, yet lost his own soul. And so we are more greatly blessed in that realm, especially, than what Henry the Ford was. But uh, Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth, and they had only one stipulation, one rule, of course, uh, of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat thereof. Exactly what that fruit was, again, a matter of much speculation. Uh, some think it was an apple, uh, and some think it was a, something of a grape tree. I, I don't know exactly what it was. It's not important. The important thing was that it was the one rule, one fruit, that God said you should not eat thereof. Now, there's no hint that God said you should not touch it. I guess that's implied. I, I, I'm not sure. But uh, Satan came to Eve and said to her, uh, Hath God said, you should not eat of every tree of the garden? And that's, again, a lesson for us that the very point of which Satan attacks uh, truth is he challenges God's Word. The Bible has always been an article, an item of much subtle attacks by various means. Uh, it has been tried to be destroyed, burned. Can you imagine that there's a time in Europe when the possession of a Bible would cost you your life? And if it was found in your possession, you not only were put in prison or put to death, but the Bible was taken and burned. And that was under the instigation of the Roman Catholic Church, who did not want to have the Bible distributed among the people because, of course, they knew that the Bible would expose its errors. Uh, there are countries in the world today where if you have in possession of the Bible, your life is in jeopardy. I'm reading in, his, reading in news that there is a woman, a doctor woman in Sudan, uh, who's under the death penalty simply because she married a Christian man. Uh, and I'm told that if you have a Bible possession in that country, uh, it'll cost you your life. Various means have been used by Satan, some of them by persecution and some of them by perversions. I warn everyone against the modern-day translations. I call them perversions. The King James is the safest and best translation uh, of the Bible that you have. I take that from various sources of authority, uh, and I have one man that I highly esteemed uh, in Oklahoma, uh, Brother Roy Smith. Brother Roy Smith uh, is a very astute, knowledge scholar of both Hebrew and Greek, and he has told me repeatedly time and time again, he said, Brother Herb, my years of studying of the original language has brought me to the conclusion that the Bible, New King James translation, is the safest and most accurate translation that there is in the world today. And the reason why you have so many translations today, first of all, is because of the money racket, and secondly, is because of Satan's attempt, subtle attempts to try and pervert the Word of God. And so he says, Have God said to sow a, a doubt? May I emphasize to you the, the authority of the Word of God? It is our sole authority for doctrine and practice. There was nothing ever devised by man that is any more authoritative or any more to be followed and believed than the Word of God. Uh, in the 12th chapter of Psalms, the 12th Psalms, uh, that profound statement is made there by David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he <clears throat> says to us in that 12th verse, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, 
purified seven times. Purified seven times. And then in verse 7, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. I believe in the preservation of the Word of God uh, to our present day and age. And so I have no problem saying this Bible, this book that I hold, is indeed the preserved Word of God to us. Now, there are a few places that indeed we could uh, say that there could be improvement on the King James uh, translation. The word baptism, for instance, is referred to as being an ecclesiastical word. Uh, it was devised and consented to by the translators because of King James. One of the rules they came under was that they could not make any translation any way that would violate the teachings of the Anglican Church, the Church of England, which he was the head of. You know the division that brought about by King Henry VIII. And King James said that there would be no translation in any way. And so they had to make a compromise. And so they just, what we refer to as anarchize, the Greek word baptismo, which means to immerse or plunge beneath. That word, there's no, no doubt. John Calvin acknowledged and Martin Luther acknowledged that, that was the meaning of the word and that was the general pra- that was the practice of early Christians was to immerse their followers. Uh, the second word is the word church. That word should have been translated uh, ecclesia should have been translated either assembly or congregation. Uh, and it has a very definite meaning. Always a, an assembly that is called out and can be uh, and is assembled. It's translated in the 19th chapter of Acts that way uh, several times. I believe the word is there uh, three times, the word assembly. And it is the Greek word ecclesia. Uh, That again was as a consensus or an ecclesiastical word to consent with the teaching of the Church of England at that time. And so Satan tries and does undermine truth by by bringing about a perversion or the diversion from the true meaning of the true teachings of of the Word of God. John Gill was a highly esteemed scholar among Baptists. But bless his heart, there were a few places where he was wrong. And if he had consulted with me, I could have helped him an awful lot, you know. I'm just making something of humorous point that the best scholars of all are not so wise that they are without error. And unless they are guided and would be guided with infallible guidance by the Holy Spirit of God, there would be error even the apostles. But our Lord made promise to them that He would give them the Holy Spirit. And He, because of His intercessory prayer to the Father, sent the Holy Spirit among and upon the apostles, giving them infallible words to write so that, as Peter said, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And Paul then saying, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, coming from the very mouth of God. That's what the word inspiration means. So there can be no improvement on doctrine. There can be no authority given to God's people any higher and any more authoritative than thus saith the word of God. And all doctrinal statements, you know, we Baptists speak and talk about the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, the Philadelphia Confession of Faith, 1646, Baptist Confession of Faith. Whatever those confessions of faith, they are but expressions of men trying to express what they understand the Bible says, and they have error in them. All of them have errors in them. There is no creed, there is no doctrinal statements ever been drafted by man, but what it does not have error in it. I was at Bob Jones University, and every Sunday 
morning in the services, we had to repeat the Apostles' Creed as it was so named. Well, it was not the Apostles' Creed. It was not formulated to some 200 years at least, approximately 300 years after the Apostles. And it has error in it. The Catholic Church put into it that Christ ascended into hell. He did not ascend into hell, but that was their doctrine that supports the doctrine of purgatory. Uh, so there's no creed, there's no doctrinal statement ever been drafted that God's people need to look to being our authority, except thus saith the Word of God. And when we get away from that, we are in dangerous ground. The old Baptists, when they were defending their the doctrines, they would cite chapters and verse, reference, thus saith the Word of God. And their persecutors would ridicule them because they could not point to some creed. And they said, thus saith the Lord. And that should be our position always. Thus saith the Lord. And so Satan comes and says, have God said. And so Eve says something here that I think is the beginning of an error manifesting. And the woman said to the serpent, we may not eat of the trees of the garden. We may eat of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And, and I'm just thinking, saying to myself, it appears to me, she, she added to, thus saith the Lord. That's a danger also. We should never go beyond the Word. We should seek to fulfill the Word of God, but we should not, in our extreme, go beyond the Word of God. There are two errors that people can fall into. One of them is to deny the Word of God. And the second error is to go to extremism. Even primitive Baptists at times have gone to extremes uh, and in trying to defend the Word of God. You know very well that there was a time among primitive Baptists that foreign evangelism was ridiculed, scoffed at. Thank the Lord we have been recovered from that error among many. I won't say all, but many. And God has greatly blessed the efforts of men who've gone into foreign countries. Brother Gunnar, I was talking to him just to day or so to go by phone and he was telling me brother herb we've got a preacher's meeting coming up in this month uh, in which we'll have 20 preachers from andre pradesh coming andre pradesh is a large state in india away from tamanadu wherein that brother gunu is native to and the language of andre pradesh is totally different from the language of Tamanadu, wherein Brother Guna lives. The fact of the matter is, uh, when he goes over there, he has to use an interpreter uh, to preach in that state. And here we've got 20 primitive Baptist preachers now in the state of Andre Pradesh, plus uh, the 15 or so we have in Tamanadu. Uh, <clears throat> great blessing, other parts of the world. Uh, and so extremes are an area we can fall into also. I think formality is one of those extremes. The Bible says that all things be done in decency and in order. Yet you'll find, you'll find that in the worship of the early Christians and biblical Christians, it's always been a very simple form of worship. When we go to other countries, for instance, uh, as primitive Baptists, uh, one of the things that, uh, that we have to explain to them is we don't, we're not formal. John, the fourth chapter, the Lord said, God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And in Corinthians, Paul tells us how that we are to worship the Lord. He'll sing in the Spirit. I'll sing with the understanding. And I'll pray with the Spirit. I'll pray with the understanding. Spiritual, biblical worship is spiritual worship, and it is biblical. It's according to truth. There are a lot of churches and a lot of orders that their formality or their form of worship is either extremism of emotions or extremism of formalism. Neither is correct. Biblical worship 
is spiritual and it is emotional. I've been in those kind of services wherein I felt an emotional joy because of the Holy Spirit. But the radical extremism that many orders follow after is nothing but the flesh and is excitement of the flesh. The same kind of excitement you can get at a ball game or the same kind of excitement you can get at a dance. And, and many of them use the very same methods to excite people and they think that they've had a spiritual worship. And in trying to get away from that, then there's the other extreme that many orders go to wherein that is a very rigid form of formalism. Well, <clears throat> New Testament churches are to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And it is to be a very simple form. Uh, formality is not inducive to spiritual worship. Now, I don't mean to say that we should not have an order. I'm just saying that formality is also a tool of the flesh. And people get caught up with the formalism and not with the spirituality of biblical worship. And so she adds to it. We can even touch it. Well, if the case is that God did not say that, now she's fallen victim to Satan's next trap. Because what does he do? Well, very obviously, he reaches out and touches the fruit. Because you see in verse 4, And the servant said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw, that's my basis for saying that she was adding to, God said you can't even touch it. And that's my base, my understanding here. I could be in error, but I'm just explaining to you my understanding. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and of course of seeing could mean her understanding, uh, her carnal understanding. I, I, I don't really think that that's what it's meant. But anyway, follow my reasoning, if you will. So Satan reaches out and grabs that proof, whatever it was, and he, she sees that when he touches it, she's not killed immediately, and so I can do the same thing. Uh, a lesson here. The world can do things and get by with them that God's people can't get by with. God holds a much higher standard to his people than he does to the world. Now, ultimately, they will be judged by it. You know, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Well, whatsoever a man soweth, that shall you also reap. And every sin and every transgression will be ultimately judged. But it may seem like on the surface that they're getting by with it. And you'll find that in 73rd Psalms, I believe it is, that the writer says, When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, my feet almost slipped. And that's a temptation, you know. It looks like, well, they can do wrong and get by with it. There's no reckoning. And he says in that, he says, they have more to eat than they can devour. And they're so fat, their eyes about pop out. And he, of course, was probably suffering from, like most of us, poverty. Well, God's people are held to a higher standard than what the world is. And we should be separate from the world. And so he reaches out and takes the fruit. And she saw that it was good. Pleasant eyes and treated and desired to make one wise. And how subtle in the methods that Satan uses still today is the very same methods. That's, edu that's wisdom or worldly wisdom, I should say. Knowledge, education. And I'm not against education. But education must be submitted to and humbled to and submitted, uh, uh, brought under the discipline of God. You know, what is it that most scholars today are saying about the Bible? It's a bunch of fables. Well, there's nothing wrong with higher education as long as it does not produce atheism. Make one wise. She took the fruit and did eat and gave it to her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. <clears throat> now, they were covered with a robe of innocence, 
But when they transgress, they lose that innocence. Sin is exposed by the law of God. That's the purpose of the law. It's the standard whereby we measure ourselves by. And when they transgress the law of God, their sin, their innocence is lost, and their sin is exposed. And then they did the very next thing that all religion is all about. They tried to cover up their wretchedness. Now, the word apron here is a word that we have understanding of. It's just a, an apron that women put on in the kitchen, maybe, just a kind of a, almost like a loin cloth. That's not what the word is. It means a robe, full covered. But look at the temporary, how temporary it is. It's out of fig leaves. Cover over every part of the body, but it is out of fig leaves. It's not permanent, and it is not sufficient to cover their sin before God. And then in verse 8, they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. When I was a boy at home, sometimes while parents, my dad and mother were gone, I would do things that they would not approve of. Or they would give me work to do that I wouldn't get done sometimes. And the one thing that I always dreaded and my ear was always attuned to was to hear my parents drive up in the car in the driveway. And then fear, intimidation, and flooded my soul because I knew that I was about to face an hour of reckoning. I can imagine Adam and Eve. I surmise that when they take of the fruit, I think that there must have been a hush that fell across all creation. I heard an old preacher use this expression that all nature now sings in a minor key. Even the very beautiful world that we live in has been tarnished by sin. In the 8th chapter of Romans, Paul speaks about that. And animals prey upon each other. And you have devastation. You have floods. You have earthquakes. You have all these things. And they are the results of sin, tornadoes and hurricanes, cancer. All this is the consequence of sin. And the angels in heaven must have somewhat held their breath, so to speak, and stood in fearful trembling. What now? Man has done that very thing that God said not to do, and they knew what God had done concerning the angels that rebelled. They were cast out. Now God could very well kill Adam and Eve and make a new man in Adam, new woman, destroy the whole universe. He's pleased to do so and make another one. It takes only the speaking of his word, and it's done dreadful fear hush comes over and Adam and Eve have it in their hearts conscience of man there is a conscience in every man and woman walked across the face of the earth Paul talks about it in Romans the second chapter having the law of God in their hearts and it is that by which we accuse or condemn each other by conscience is not sufficient to bring about a revelation of God creation is not a sufficient to bring about salvation but all of them speak of God's existence man tries to smother it out trample it out tries to do things whereby his conscience is pacified. But God comes to reckon with man. He will ultimately reckon with all men. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Here, the head of the race, Adam, the mother of all mankind, they represent all humanity. God comes to them. Will he destroy them? He, they deserve it. And God had told them, the day thou eatest up, thou shalt surely die. And they did begin to die. They died spiritually. They are not aware of it, but they died spiritually. And they begin to die physically. They live for several more years after this, but they begin to die. And they heard the voice of the Lord walk in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord, the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said to him, Where are you? That's a good question we all need to ask ourselves from time to time. Where am I? In the sight of God, where am I? Where am I compared to what I was yesterday or last year? 
Where am I headed? Brother Herman, give me an expression of his. When you start somewhere, you need to know where you're headed. But we need to remind ourselves, where am I going? Where is this? Where am I? Coming over to Brother and Sister Splash's house yesterday evening, I missed a turn. I thought I knew the road for sure, and I had a map in front of me on my phone, and uh, I wasn't following it. And I missed a turn. And going out through the, on out the road there, I began to realize I different scenery and what I was familiar with and different surroundings. And I said to my wife, we, we, we've missed the road. I need to turn around and go back. Time and time again, we get out of step, so to speak, with the Word of God. And, and, and we need to ask ourselves, where am I? Where do I stand before God? Not how does men look at me, but how do I stand before God? Men may be praising you, but how does God see you? Your fellow workmen, work people, they may be honoring you, but how does God see you? I can't think of the man's name right now. You can maybe recall him, but there was an athlete who was to run in the Olympics years past. And because he would not violate the law of God or run on the Sabbath day, he declined to run in the race that he was favored to win. And his country, England, was greatly disappointed in him because they knew he could win the gold medal running in that race. And so he declined to do so in his much displeasure to the nation that had sent him there. But later on, he ran in other races and won the gold medal in them and was highly acclaimed and was honored because he would not violate the Lord's day. We need to see ourselves in the eyes of God. Who am I? How am I? Where am I standing? Am I closer to the Lord today than what I was yesterday? Am I following the Lord more faithfully this week than what I was last week? Or is there a coldness that's drifted in? Is there a distance between me and the Lord that I've ignored? A person related to me one time, their experience... They were sitting at a table with a bunch of people who were drinking and using dope. And this young man said to me, told me later, he said, as I sat there, I thought about what am I doing here? I was reared in a Christian home and my mother and father are Christians and what am I doing here? And he got up and left the table. I was in Bob Jones. I heard a man give an experience that has stuck with me. I didn't learn much at Bob Jones because I'm not a good student, but I, some things was impressed on me. And this man gave this story. His parents were missionaries in Australia, and they were sending him to England to go to college. And this was many years ago, of course, and the means of travel was only by boat, and it would be very expensive. And so they told him that we'll not get to come and see you until you graduate. When he went away to college then, his mother stuck a letter in his baggage, luggage, he opened it, arriving in England, and in that letter she said something like this, Son, you will be tempted with many devices of Satan to indulge in things that you were not allowed to indulge in at home that you knew your parents forbid, for, for, would forbid you to do so. But I want you to live in such a way that when your mother and father come to visit you, see you at your graduation, that we won't be ashamed and you won't be ashamed to see us. He said, I carried that letter with me all four years of my college. I never went out of the building, went out of my room, but what I did not have it in my possession. Because he said, I knew as I walked the streets of London, there would be many devices and many temptations to sin. And he said, seemed like when a sin was, temptation was about to grab me most strongly, he said, I would just put my hand on that letter and remind myself that there was a coming a day when I would meet my parents and I didn't want to be ashamed and didn't want them to be ashamed of me. And he said, I knew my mother that she would know. And so he said, I'm thankful to say that I went through college four years, and when my parents came to visit me, I was not ashamed to see them, and they were not ashamed to see me. I think about that oftentimes. I think about the idea of me meeting the Lord, 
ashamed him, the Lord said, if the man would deny me before men, I will deny before my father. Now, I believe in eternal covenant. Indeed, God will never deny his people. But yet, there is a challenge to live in such a way that I don't want the Lord to be in any way ashamed. But I want to hopefully that he will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. John makes reference to this in his epistle in 1 John. He says this, second chapter of 1 John in verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Whatever you do in life, wherever you go in life, the Lord is present, knows. There's no sin hid to him. There's no thought hid to him. There's no action hid to him. And ultimately, as Paul says, we must all give an account before the Lord. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the issue is whether we should be ashamed. In the third chapter of 1 Corinthians, I read about men's works who are burned up, and yet they're saved, yet so is by fire. I often think about that, about preachers, about churches, about Christians, some people who've done some great noble things as in a religious effort, and yet all, in spite of all their works, they're burned up, and only by God's grace are they saved. Where are you? Verse 10 I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. And he said, Who told you that thou was naked? That man's conscience. Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that I should not eat? And the man said, The woman which thou gavest me to be with me, she gave me the tree, and I did eat. And I said, That's the first proof of depravity is we want to blame somebody else. You know, the difference between the two men that our Lord spoke about, the Pharisee and the publican. Pharisee said, Lord, I thank you I'm not like other men. And he began to talk about all the good things he did. But the publican said, and this is significant, God be merciful to me, the sinner. The definite article in the Greek is there. He wasn't just saying, I'm a sinner like everybody else. He was speaking about himself in an exclusive sense. I am the sinner. The difference between God dealing with us in repentance and our conscience just condemning us is when God deals with us and shows to us, we are indeed, as it were, the chief of sinners, transgressors. I don't care not what other people think so much of me as what I see myself before God. I am the sinner, the sinner. But we always want to blame somebody. And society is doing that. Education. Well, if we give everybody a better education, well, and or we give them all, every everybody wealth. We give everybody, you know, a better opportunity in life. Then they'll be better. And the reason why certain people do certain bad things is because they've had a bad family life. It's a personal thing, reckoning. And so Adam blamed the woman, and men have been blaming women ever since. And the Lord said to this, on the woman, What is it thou hast done? This shows her depravity. The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Well, she's honest about that. She was beguiled. Paul makes mention of that. You know, you think about Adam saying, The woman thou gavest me. Wait a minute. God did a bad thing in giving you a wife? It's not good for men to dwell alone. Why in the world are you blaming your wife? God gave her to her to be a helpmate to you. You're supposed to be her head. You're supposed to be her defender, provider. She is merely a helpmate to you. Why are you blaming her? Why did you listen to her? Oftentimes, we blame God for things, circumstances in our life, for the problem lies with ourselves. I believe that we are where we are by the will of God. Whatever job you have is by the will of God. Whatever spouse you have is by the will of God. God suffers things to happen. God provides things, things for us. What we do with them is our responsibility and our accountability is done to God. 
Moses wanted to complain to God that he wasn't eloquent enough. And so God gave him Aaron as a mouthpiece. I doubt that Moses was sufficient in eloquence or speaking. It was just his excuse to try to keep from serving, get out of going to Pharaoh. Oftentimes we blame God for our circumstances and we see not that it's an opportunity to serve God in that place. Well, I'm going to move on. The serpent beguiled me and I did eat. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field, and upon thy belly shall thou go, and thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it, or actually he, as it is a masculine word, shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This verse, verse 15, is the, referred to as being the first gospel messianic promise in the Bible. It is the first gospel verse in the Bible, and the first messianic promise given to us. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and that enmity between mankind and serpent has been ongoing ever since the Garden of Eden. Satan is not our friend. He is referred to as being a liar and a murderer by Christ. He was a murderer from the beginning, and Satan is a destroyer. He seeks to destroy individual people's lives in a physical way and a spiritual way. People are moved by satanic powers and influence to bring about their own self-destruction. Why does drugs have such an impact on people? What is the source of the inducing of drugs into mankind? It is satanic. It's demonic. And when people get on drugs, you'll see satanic, demonic conduct going on. Alcohol, satanic, demonic, vices, crimes. People do things, wars, all of those things are as a result of satanic, demonic influence and they are brought about by Satan in his desire to try to destroy the human race. Why? Well, first of all, because he knew that in the human race would come forth the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior. He also knew that in the human race there would be, no doubt, those who would be followers of the Messiah. And he knows something of what God would do with the, with the saints, that they should be witnesses among in the world in which they live. And so Satan would try to destroy all humanity. And you will find the history uh, that God, that Satan has been trying to do that throughout time. Look at the garden, look at uh, Israel in Egypt land. Uh, the decree of the Pharaoh that the male children would all be put to death. It was because of satanic, demonic impact, trying to bring about a destruction and prevention of the Messiah coming forth. Herod, uh, when he heard that there was born king of the Jews, uh, he had the children, the infants killed there in Bethlehem. And so abortion is an act and sponsored and promoted by Satan in the destruction of, of children. All the time Satan brings this, is, is manifesting his enmity against mankind. And then particularly he says, and between thy seed and her seed. And this speaks directly to the opposition that goes on between the godly people and the ungodly. The people of Christ. In the book of Galatians, Paul makes a reference to this. Well, in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John, first of all, our Lord tells us some things here. He says, the proof that you're not of the world. John chapter 15, I'm reading in verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you by satanic, demonic inspiration, guidance. The world is incited against the saints of God. Paul then in Galatians makes a reference to that and he talks about the two children of, of sons of Abraham, how that Ishmael hated 
uh, Isaac, and there was strife from them. Verse 28. And now we, brethren, as Isaac was our the children of promise. Verse 29. But as then, but as then, even so in Paul's day, he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Paul knew himself had been one of the persecutors of the saints of God. And it is that the whole world is against Christians, against God's people. But it particularly is between thy seed and her seed. It is against Christ. In the second chapter of Psalms, uh, you have this declaration made here. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their courts from us. That's the world's design to destroy God's people, to prevent Christ uh, having His rightful place in the universe, in the world. And so, between thy seed and her seed. And it will be, the consequences of this will be, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. There were two bruisings here involved. One of them is not fatal, in the, but one of them is injurious, painful, to bruise the heel. God's people, you know very well that Christ himself was put to the cross and suffered the, the bruising of his heels on the cross of Calvary. But it was not to his destruction. It was indeed that he was victorious from the death of the cross and came forth then the third day, victorious over sin and death itself. And he, in that act, he did crush the head of the serpent. And so he has indeed bruised the head of the serpent and gained for us the great victory over all principalities and powers. You sang that song a while ago, and it's amazing that Brother John picked that song out because I had it selected as a song uh, that I wanted to read to you, number 557. And in that song, it speaks about the glorious triumphant entry of Christ into glory following his resurrection, whereby that Paul describes it and says that he led captivity captive. Christ, our great captain of our salvation, has defeated our foes, and he has defeated Satan. And uh, it's not 557, or what was that number? 567, 567. Arise, glorious conqueror, into thy native skies, heaven. Assume thy ride, where in many a fold the clouds are backward rolled. Pass through those gates of gold and reign in life. Christ ascended into heaven. I believe myself that it was an ascension that took place immediately after his resurrection, wherein that he took his own blood and entered the holies of holies and sprinkled the mercy seat on behalf of his people, and there did indeed obtain eternal salvation for his people. And he led captivity captive. He showed forth that he was the victor over Satan, over sin, and over death. And he triumphant entered into glory, and the angels rare heralded his entrance as the mighty conqueror, as the lion of the tribe of Judah, as John describes in Revelation. There is a bruising of his heel. We see that on the cross. But may I say that that applies to us as God's people also. We're not immune to Satan's bruising of our heel. Sickness afflicts God's people as well as it does the un ungodly. Sick bruising of the heel. Tribulations, trials. Our Lord himself said, in this world you shall have tribulations. The history of God's people is a bloody history. We are the objects of scorn and ridicule, but not only scorn and ridicule, but of physical persecution. Trouble, pain, sadness, heartache, all of those things are the bruising of our heels. Paul speaks about that in the 8th chapter of Romans. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. 
you ever consider yourself as that? And the world's view in this time period in which we live, we are presently being protected by the government from persecution, but God's people for, throughout history have been counted sheep for the slaughter. And I'm afraid that even here in our own America that we will face the very same kind of circumstances as sheep for the slaughter. Why doesn't God, who is able, why does He not just throw somewhat like He did Job, a hedge about us, and we are immune to any kind of afflictions and persecutions and bruising of our heels? It is because in the bruising of your heels that you're proven to be God's people. The 15th chapter of John that I just read a while ago, the world will hate you because I've chosen you out of the world. Many Christians are whinies. Someone says something against us and we whine about it. We cry about it. Someone scoffs at you because you believe the Bible and we think that we've really been persecuted, insulted. Hebrews, the 12th chapter, I think about that verse oftentimes. Paul said to those saints of God, you've not yet resisted under the blood striving against sin. <laughs> what, a, what a rebuke. You've not yet resisted under the blood striving against sin. And if we do shed blood, if they do take our lives, what is it but the bruising of your heel? The Lord in the 16th chapter of Matthew said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The world and the devil has tried to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, but it is still in existence today. And you are here as witnesses of that. Yes, the church has been bruised, your heel has been bruised many times. Saints have been put to death, martyrdom throughout the days since the days of Christ, but she has not been destroyed, church of Christ. Heel bruised? Yes. Paul says, we are counted as sheep for the, for the slaughter. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As the written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, what? Tell me, what? What are we? In all these things, more, 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 not just merely conquerors, but more than conquerors. You don't come through the struggles and the fires and the, the battles that Satan places on God's people and against his church. We don't come through it merely survivors. We come forth as more than conquerors, glorious inheritors we have in Christ, received into every eternal Glory, recognized and embraced by our Savior with eternal heaven as ours, more than conquerors. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities of powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Just as our Lord's heel was bruised, and yet in the bruising of his heel, it was merely the bruising of his heel, and he was victorious and triumphant over Satan and crushed his head. So the saints of God likewise, their heels are bruised oftentimes and many times, and the sum total of our life is that our heels are bruised. But I'll tell you, we are more than conquerors. When we stand before our blessed Savior and see him in his glorified glory, we there with glorified bodies are with him. Paul says in the 8th chapter of Romans that we will reckon that the suffering of this present world is not worthy to be compared to the glory that should be revealed unto us. <laughs> he said they won't mount a thing. Not even worth talking about. You're not going to endure, you're not going to whine and fuss about and talk about all the pain you went through. No, you won't even consider it. Not worthy to be reckoned. 
the glory shall be revealed in us. You here are struggling as a church. All churches are struggling. I just came back from a trip out in Texas, and I visited among many different churches at different times. Wherever I go in the world, I find Christian people struggling with problems in life, family problems, marital problems, health problems, financial problems, trouble. Job said that man is born to trouble. And our troubles seem to be somewhat, at times, overwhelming us. And our heels are bruised. But our Savior has already gained for us the victory. It's already been fought. The battle's already been fought. And Christ has already been victorious. We are victors in Christ. More than conquerors through him that loved us. Heels bruised, but we crush his head. In the 15th chapter of the book of Romans, Paul says that to the saints at Rome. He, he full well knows what's going on at Rome. And they are dealing with that... Roman Empire and Nero there in Rome, and they're going to be put to death. They're going to be burned. 16th chapter of Romans, really, what it is. Verse 20, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet. The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet. The church of Jesus Christ is victorious. Saints of God are victorious because our Savior bruised Satan's head in our behalf. God bless you. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning. Our, we thank you for our mighty Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for thy word that you have given to us. Help us, dear Lord, to be followers of it. Help us to be faithful to Christ in all that we do. We thank you for him who indeed crushed Satan's head in our behalf, whereby we are blessed to have eternal life, our sins forgiven, and death has no more power over us. We pray that indeed that you might bless us with the peace of God to know that we are more than conquerors to him that loved us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. God bless you.